This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with author and China expert Linda Javen. Linda joined me to talk about her fascinating new book, The Shortest History of China. We discuss the vast expanse of China's cultural, philosophical and political history from ancient and imperial times to the modern day. I'm so delighted to welcome onto the program Linda Javen. She is an author and has been studying Chinese politics, language and culture for over 40 years. She's been a foreign correspondent in China. She's a co-editor of the China Story Yearbook, which is a really wonderful publication that comes out of the ANU. And she's the author of 12 books, including this book called The Shortest History of China, which has been released by Black Ink Books. And we're going to be talking about the history of China. And uh, even this chat is quite ambitious. So we'll see where we get to. Uh, But we are going to talk about a range of periods over thousands of years. So uh, we're going to have a little bit of a tour and stop in some of the areas of Chinese history, the essential areas, but also some of those really intriguing areas you may not have heard of and, and become familiar with. So I welcome onto the program Linda Javen, who is joining me, I think, from Locked Down Sydney. Hi there, Linda. Hi, Amy. It's great to be here virtually. I love Triple R. <laughs> and it's it's uh, it's great to speak to you. And it gets me out of Sydney in a, you know, out of the lockdown in a sort of a, um, yeah, in a virtual sense. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, having uh, broadcast through lockdown last year or two lockdowns last year, mm. um, long lockdowns in Melbourne, I can absolutely appreciate the need to have these stimulating conversations to take <laughs> you out of your four walls. But yeah, it must be a little bit frustrating having recently released a book and and now you're in lockdown. Yeah, it has been a bit frustrating. We've lost a few, um, you know, writers in general have lost the Byron Bay Writers Festival and Canberra's been moved and a couple of bookshop events. Actually, my events in Melbourne were lost to the the first little Melbourne lockdown. I was going to do a conversation for readings with Kevin Rudd and another one for La Trobe Asia, but we're hoping to reschedule those. So cross fingers. Yes, cross fingers. But look, I'm fine. I mean, we're going through and what we're going through now is, is still nothing as compared to what Melbourne went through last year. So no complaints. No, well, I'm hoping that it doesn't get to that and that um, things get oh, we all are. better soon. Yeah, absolutely. Now, this book, there's so many points of entry that it's sometimes a bit hard to start, but I do want to perhaps start with you. For people who may not be familiar with your work and, and haven't come across your great passion and excitement for China and knowledge about Chinese history and Chinese culture, what really sparked your imagination about China and led you to have a really personal connection to China and go to the country and appreciate its people and and to then really write about it and study about it and talk about it for so many years? Well, that's that's a good question. Um, It was pure serendipity. I uh, I went to university at Brown University in the United States. And one of the things about Brown was that it's a fantastic university and that it's more open and it had what they called a new curriculum at the time, which, which was very different from the more traditional curriculum. So you could just experiment and they encouraged you to experiment. So you didn't have to choose what you were going to study for a while. And in my first year, while I was choosing my first semester's course, 
courses, I asked around, I said, I was planning to study political science, but I wanted to do courses that challenged me and that I had never even thought about before. So I asked people for recommendations and I ended up taking uh, introduction to physics for non-physics majors, mm-hmm. <laughs> Russian literature and translation, oh, wow. and, you know, just a whole bunch of really different things. Um, uh Latin, you know, um, just different things. And one person said, the person, I said, I'm looking for something that's also taught really well. And somebody said, Introduction to East Asian History by Professor Lee Williams is fantastic. And I thought, wow, I've never even, I had honestly never thought about China or Japan. Like I just hadn't, it hadn't been in my head, you know. Mm. Um, I knew they existed. (laughs) Um, And it was in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. So China was very mysterious and weird, you know. And I was a little student radical, so I was kind of happy with that aspect. But I didn't really know anything. So I took this course, and it changed my life, as did Lee Williams, the professor, because after I just began taking more and more and more and more courses, it was clear that I was going to end up with, um, well, I did a double major in political science and uh, Chinese history or Asian history, as it was called, with some a study of Southeast Asia and Japan and so on. He said to me, you have to take Chinese. You cannot not take Chinese. And I was like, oh, my God, like, I couldn't even get through French in high school. <laughs> I was really bad at that. I, don't, I, I was one of those people who, who would say, and I always tell people this story when they say this to me, oh, I'm not good at languages. You know, mm. I didn't know. I didn't know why you'd study language. I didn't understand that thoroughly, and I didn't know how to study language. Anyway, he pushed me and pushed me and made me do it. And I am, I thank him every day. You know, I really do, because he changed my life. His courses changed my life. His insistence that I study Chinese changed my life. I just, a whole world opened to me. He said, you cannot understand China. You are fascinated by it, obviously, but you will never, ever get past a very superficial understanding if you don't go into the language. So I did, and I was like, oh, my God, why did I take so long to get get here? And then I went to Taiwan after graduating university to, to further my study of Chinese. And it was originally supposed to be a year, and then I'd figure out what I was going to do at the time. I mean, now people are like, oh, a career, you know, you can you can go into business with China, yeah. you can go into this and that. At the time, it was really, you could be a diplomat or a spy <laughs> or, an ac- or an academic, um, never being able to get to China because China was, you know, pretty closed and studying something and just that just felt so dusty to me, you know, <laughs> the idea of doing a PhD and being I wanted to get out and see the world. So I went to Taiwan with no really big plan. And then I was like, okay, that's it. I'm never coming back. And I lived nine years. I lived two years in Taiwan and I lived in Hong Kong and became a correspondent and and, uh, covered both China and Taiwan uh, and Hong Kong affairs, uh, learned some Cantonese, uh, then lived in China. And China's been part of my life ever since. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, those who aren't initiated with China and and even the language, obviously, there's Mandarin, there's Cantonese, but there are many other dialects and formulations of Chinese. (laughs) And one of the things you mentioned there about, well, you have to you have to learn the language. You just can't understand Chinese history and culture without knowing the language. I actually, I can't think of an example where it's more critical to learn the language because, I mean, with Chinese words, there is a certain intonation with the words that can change the meaning of a word. There are certain (laughs) words that sound the same that can be used as like a play on words. 
you know, there are cultural and historical references that people use with language. There's just so many really wonderful, clever, witty, smart, biting, you know, ways that you can use Chinese language and draw on this rich cultural history. So, I mean, I was really surprised and had my eyes opened at just how sophisticated and wonderful that the Chinese language is. Yes, and, and one of the things that I do in The Shortest History of China is talk about the language itself, because it is terribly important. And I also have a lot of quotations from Chinese that are perhaps not that familiar, but are really relevant to understanding Chinese history and Chinese culture and the present as well. There are quotations from past poets and past philosophers and so on that, for example, Xi Jinping will use. And you have to be alert to that. You have to be alert to why is this particular formulation that he's using interesting? So, for example, I'll give you a really simple one. China's surveillance system, its uh, electronic surveillance system, is called Heaven's Net, right? Tianwang. And it's kind of cool, like Heaven's Net, right? But it's so interesting because it, it comes from a line in the Dao De Jing, in, in the Taoist classic, that nothing escapes heaven's net. But of course, it's also ironic in the sense that um, the Taoist said that the ruler who is the most successful is the ruler who basically doesn't do anything, but everything's so nicely set up that things work and the people flourish and they say, oh, we did that ourselves. <laughs> but in, you know, and, and she is the opposite of the Taoist ruler. He is, mm. the, he is the most interventionist, you know, activist, un-Taoist ruler. But you get alert to these little ironies and these, and he also quotes extensively from classical sources. So he quotes a poet who was also a, an official from the Song dynasty, and known as a poet as Su Dongpo, as an official as Su Shi. And he says, he likes this quote very, very much. And he talks about how the, the, the actual quote is, of all the disasters under heaven, the most damaging is that of the appearance of social stability when elements of instability lurk beneath the surface. To passively observe such a disaster without acting to defeat it will let it develop to the point of no return. So you can see this where the political idea comes from. Now, that quote was really difficult to translate. Mm. I found it, of all things, on the website of the Confucian Museum <laughs> in Shandong, of the museum where Confucius was born, of, of the place where, where Confucius was born, because I, I looked and they had a page of the quotations, classical quotations that Xi Jinping used, but I couldn't find a good translation. So I had to use, I had to figure it out myself, and then I ran it by a classical scholar. Mm. To, to get that like nuance as to how you translate something that has many meanings and double meanings and references. And there's so much in some statements. And I think some Australians perhaps, you know, if we heard our leader quoting classical scripts or Latin or, you know, something <laughs> from a very, very distant past, you know, we might think, oh, well, I think he's kind of out of touch and he doesn't know what he's saying and we don't even know what he's talking about. But in China, what Xi Jinping is drawing on are references that are very, very widely known and that are really commonly understood and appreciated. So this is something that's really ubiquitous in China, isn't it? It is. And, um, it's very interesting because some of the quotations are less well-known than others. And he won't necessarily say, as Su Shi said, 
you know, <laughs> they go straight into the quotation. And you can tell from the style of it that it's not contemporary speech. But you won't necessarily know unless you look it up. But there are some that are more well-known than others. And a lot of people will get it, you know, and they, mm. and they might get the irony of him using it or they might get the the deeper meaning of him using it, you know. Um, but people have played with things. Mao, for example, in the shortest history of China, I have Mao, a poem by Mao, that quotes a poem by that same person, Su Dongpo, in his role as a poet. And earlier in the Song Dynasty chapter, I have a poem. And then later when we get to Mao Zedong, I have the poem that he wrote, which was the answer to that poem. And it just... You have to know the two references. And the original poem was a reference to an earlier historical incident that happened, I think, a, a, maybe a little less than a thousand years before Su Dongpo wrote his poem. So mm. everything, Chinese history is full of echoes. And in the shortest history of China, even though it's short, <laughs> I try to bring this out by using lots of quotations, original quotations, but also drawing these threads, so showing how an incident from, say, the year 220 resonates through time, acquires new meanings, becomes something entirely fresh. And you have to have that general sense of how that trajectory of meaning, you know, plays out. Um, one of the things that everyone in China is aware of is this confounding, very interesting, paradoxical history of Qin Shi Huang, um, terracotta warrior guy, <laughs> as I sometimes tell people, and they go, oh, right, that guy. <laughs> he was a tyrant, absolutely. He burned books and buried scholars or just executed, you know, executed intellectuals for having troublesome ideas. And he, he unified, he was the first unifier of China. So he unified a whole bunch of warring kingdoms um, into an empire. He was the first living person to use the word emperor. There were some mythological emperors, but then there were just kings. And then he came along, he conquered a bunch of other states on behalf of his own, the Qin, created the first empire, the first Chinese empire. Uh, and for that, he is revered. For that, he is considered an absolutely great man in history. And yet, he, he was able to accomplish what he accomplished on the basis of tyrannical rule and the suppression of dissent. And then what happened is the empire fell apart before really he could get to his, the, the, the successor after his son. So it was a very short dynasty. So the complicated legacy of that dynasty has haunted Chinese politics ever since, because do you have to be tyrannical and suppress dissent to keep unity, to keep things together? But on the other hand, if you do that, then you suppress so much that there's going to inevitably be a pushback and a rebellion against you. So how do you manage that? That's one of the one aspect of the legacy of Qin that haunts Chinese politics to this day.
Well, it's very, very relevant, isn't it? Um, and it certainly oh, does yeah. echo throughout you know, the current presidency of Xi Jinping because he has extended his presidency essentially and done a Putin um, or Putin's done a <laughs> Xi Jinping. Uh, so, you know, it's becoming a bit of a thing now. But it, it is interesting because what I found fascinating when I was talking, I actually spoke about the Terracotta Warriors with a um, an art historian a couple of years back. And I wasn't aware of, you know, the emperor behind the Terracotta Warriors and was really interested that Qin Shi Huang, he buried horses alive, you know, with the Terracotta Warriors. He, he did some really, really mad things that today we would think is barbaric, essentially. Um, did he bury horses? I, he had, he had Terracotta Horses. No, apparently he buried some alive with the terracotta ones because they had to be alive to get to the next realm or something. He did bury actual things alive in that same underground kingdom, I guess you could say. That's the first I've heard of that. That's interesting. I mean, in the Shang dynasty, you know, in the shortest history of China, I go way back. I go back to the cosmological origins of the universe, (laughs) (laughs) the the myths about the universe's creation. But one of the the first dynasty where we actually have historical records is the Shang. Um, And we have these records that are quite interesting called oracle bones, uh, which are um, answers that... um, oracles would give to questions posed by wealthy people or rulers. Um, and they could be like, why do I have a toothache? Is it because I offended my ancestors? Or should I go to war? <laughs> These sort of things. Anyway, the oracles would heat up either the plaster in the undershell of a tortoise or the sh- uh, kind of a shoulder bone of an ox and heat it up until it, anoint it with blood, heat it up till it cracked and then interpret the cracks. And then uh, the earliest form of Chinese writing was inscribed there to give the answers, I, probably the questions as well. I just just occurred to me, I don't know that. Um, but they would inscribe this. And so we can see some of the earliest debates and questions and concerns of history there. And this was about 1,500 um, BCE. So this is this is quite a long time ago, about 3,500 years ago, that we get these first records. And what we know about the Shang from their records is that they sort of transitioned from burying, um, for example, burying servants alive to make sure that you were cared for in the afterlife, to burying effigies of servants. So, you know, it is very possible that um, that's, that's right. And, and things kind of regress and go forward again. So I'm not saying that nobody was ever buried alive after that. That's, <laughs> I'm not saying that. But there was a, already a kind of a philosophical uh, sense that perhaps we should just bury the effigies. <laughs> it's interesting. We're talking about a whole range of different eras and dynasties. And that's something that may also be quite unfamiliar to some, they might have heard of different dynasties like the Qin dynasty, the Tang dynasty, the Northern Song, the Southern Song, uh, the Ming dynasty. These are things that people would have heard. But why is Chinese history in the imperial era broken up into these groupings of centuries and in some cases only decades? And what is it about Chinese history that delineates things? Obviously, here we have things like, you know, oh, and in the 50s, in wartime or pre-wartime or interwar years. So we break our years and and times up in similar kind of groupings. But obviously in China, there is a very, you know, specific reason why there are dynasties and they all have different characters and they've all led to different moments and evolutions within civilization. 
Yes, that's a really interesting question. So as I mentioned before, before we had Qin Shi Huang unifying these warring states, um, what there was in China were different states. So there would be uh, somebody who got rich, I suppose. Uh, it, it, in the Neolithic times, there were walled settlements uh, and the beginning of farming, of, of, of agriculture. So what would happen kind of organically is that one person would get more wealthy, they would begin hiring other people, uh, they developed a, a kind of a fiefdom. A fiefdoms were then organized into states, there were kings, the heads of these, these powerful families would come and pay obeisance to the king. And then what happened was in the period that preceded the unification in 221 BCE, the period that preceded that, these states broke up in such a catastrophic way that there was just warfare and suffering and it was just really horrible armies and rampaging through the countryside and different rulers fighting other rulers. Now, this was a time, and this is quite key, when a lot of the, the, the most crucial Chinese philosophers lived, and that was Confucius, um, Mencius, who was a Confucian disciple, um, and Taoist, and another person who a lot of people wouldn't have heard of, Han Feizi, who represents the legalist philosophy. Now, these philosophies, Confucius and legalism in particular, then created this idea. They were ideas for ruling states. They were ideas for how to rule. Now, Confucius believed, in short, that, a, that there should be a hierarchy, social hierarchy, and that education and the literate people were to rule, but the king, the, the ruler, was to rule on the basis of innate morality. So you ruled by example. You performed rites to show that you were honoring all of the correct, uh, you, were, you were honoring harvests. You were, you know, doing things to honor your your ancestors. Now, this sort of thing was a was a way of it was a philosophy of rule. The legalists were very different. They said right and wrong. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Right and wrong is whatever the ruler wants to accomplish or not accomplish. So, the way you rule is you offer rewards and punishments. You reward what you the behavior you want to happen, and you punish the others. So, Qin Shi Huang comes along. He was definitely a legalist, even though, incidentally, he killed Han Feizi, the legalist philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> it's never good to have too many thinkers around, you know, as far as they're concerned, um, as far as a tyrant like him is concerned. Anyway, so he created, as I said, the first imperial dynasty, um, and that created a form. And this um, historical model was replicated many times. And the model is you have somebody coming together, unifying what might have been a mess or just taking over a dynasty that had grown corrupt. So mm -hmm. rebels would, would, there would be rebellions and the most powerful rebel would overthrow an empire and create their own. And so you have this from dynasty to dynasty that can happen. But the other thing that can happen, and there was really long periods of time that are not talked about a lot when people talk about dynastic succession in China and they want to sort of have this vision of one period of rule after another, when one loses its vigor, another one takes over. But in fact, there were many big periods of disorder when everything was disunified. And then somebody would come along and, like Qin Shi Huang, attempt to reunify these broken up places. And this happened even in the middle of the 20th century, when warlords 
uh, the new version of the, the, the feudal kings and so on. Warlords arose in the chaos of the early Republican period. And this is after the overthrow of the last dynasty in 1911. And they were fighting among themselves. And then the central government represented by Chiang Kai-shek, in cooperation with his communist rivals, they set out to conquer the warlords and reunify China. This is an ongoing theme. And the idea is that you reunify it and then you set up your state. And this state now has what Mencius described as the mandate of heaven. So you have done things to make everything stable, to make the lives of the people fine again. You deserve the mandate of heaven. When you grow corrupt, when everything starts to fall apart, when people suffer, you have lost the mandate of heaven. Signs of losing the mandate of heaven are floods and earthquakes and so on. So interestingly, this kind of mindset, even though we no longer have imperial dynasties, when Mao lay dying, well, he was very ill in 1975-76, he was an old man. And in the summer of 1976, there was an earthquake, a huge earthquake. Hundreds of thousands of people lost their lives. And Beijing itself was shaken because it was not far from Beijing, literally shaken, as well as, I suppose, spiritually shaken. People started to whisper about the loss of the mandate of heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of concept that a rule becomes... And, and at that point, the Cultural Revolution had been going on for 10 years. So many people had lost their lives. So much destruction of, historic, of historical heritage had occurred that there was that sense. So that sense of dynastic stability or lack of stability has carried on through all this time because, not just because there have been dynasties, but because there have been huge periods of chaos and disunity, and warfare, and suffering. Yeah, it's a very tumultuous history, and really, really a fascinating one in terms of those machinations that go on, and people who declare themselves emperor, and you know, then I remember, I think, can you remind me, there was a, a person who decided that they were going to make China a republic and then actually backtracked afterwards and decided <laughs> to instate themselves as emperor. Yes, that was Yuan Shikai. So in 1911, um, the Republican Revolution that overthrew the Qing, the Qing, um, the, the, the last emperor of the Qing, Pui, he was just a kid, but his regents abdicated on his behalf in the beginning of 1912, and the new republic was inaugurated. But old ways and old ways of thinking and old politics obviously are not easily oh, right, we no longer have an empire, we have a republic, everything's going to be different. It's a lot harder than that. So the Republicans, led by Sun Yat-sen, tried really hard to institute a new kind of government, a Republican kind of government. But very early on, Yuan Shikai, who was an army man, a very canny operator, and actually seen as a progressive for various complicated reasons, that he soon betrayed, (laughs) Um, he insisted on being the president. People wanted Sun Yat-sen to be the president. But Yuan Shikai, and he wanted the capital to be in the north. Uh, Sun Yat-sen wanted to create a clean break um, from the old imperial period where Beijing had been the capital since the Mongols. So, you know, a very long time. He wanted to move the capital to the south, to Nanjing. And Yuan Shikai just let his troops loose on Beijing. And forced the 
government to let him be the president, basically. If you won't, if you won't let me be the president, I'm going to throw all the toys out the window, you know, that kind of thing. I'm going to smash everything up. So he became president and he really was a bit of a loose cannon. And he eventually did declare himself emperor. And that's when everything just obviously just went to hell. And the warlord period kind of began around there where people just went, okay, if he's going to be emperor, I'm going to be king of this place. (laughs) You mentioned there, you know, this idea that it's very hard to remove or peel back or disregard these ideas and streams of thought that have been present throughout Chinese history. And obviously you've uh, you've mentioned Confucianism and legalism and Taoism, and there's even Morsi who uh, was a little bit different and um, had oh, some yes. kind of really interesting views. Maybe we can um, recap on some of what you've just mentioned and bring in those kind of ideas and how they're still relevant now and really are present throughout history because you've, you've mentioned their, you know, legalism and the, and the approach of Confucianism. Why are some of these ideas so critical? You do reference a really great quote from a contemporary writer, Zhang Ying, who was talking about Confucianism. So I'll read out the quote. In the art of Chinese-style imperial rule, if Confucianism is the outer shell, then legalism is its inner one. To put it more bluntly, it is the abiding heart of darkness of the Chinese state. And then you go on to say that there are these major streams of thought, Confucianism, Taoism and legalism. And of course, um, in addition, there is Moorism, which is a a really interesting area. So, you know, could you tell us a little bit more um, and go into a little bit more detail about some of these ideas that seem like, oh, well, Plato existed in, you know, ancient Greek times and we've moved (laughs) on from Plato. Well, I mean, Confucius is still highly relevant to Chinese culture today. Yes, um, they all are, yeah. and um, except poor Moism. And just to give uh, your listeners, didn't um, quite get traction, did it? <laughs> no, sadly, because um, that was a philosophy that was built on the idea of peace and love and harmony and, and community. Um, he was sort of um, a an early hippie socialist, I suppose, mm-hmm. um, and it didn't really advantage many. It didn't many. Not many rulers thought, oh, that's really great for me. (laughs) So it it never got traction. But I think first what I'll say is that there are some themes that keep reoccurring through history, and those themes are the themes that are addressed by the philosophers. So some of the themes are how do you manage succession? You know, how do you, within a dynasty, for example, if, if, if a ruler dies, if an emperor dies, who gets to take their place? Now, the the... Throughout the shortest history of China, you'll see the most astonishingly violent successions (laughs) occur over and over again, where people kill sons, sons kill fathers, fathers kill, you know, people kill, boys kill brothers, and so on. Um, It's just extraordinary. And the problem of succession has haunted Chinese rulers and ruling systems to the present day. So, just first set out a couple of these problems. Another one which I suggested earlier is this notion that if you don't have unity, you have disunity. So this fear of disunity, the fear of what chaos, the lack of being controlled, is, it leads to chaos. This, this concept has, haunts uh, China. Um, there's a couple of other, you know, problems that just, issues that have haunted China from ancient times to the present. So now, if you take Confucius and legalism, which are the two guiding uh, governing philosophies, um, they both attempt to address this. 
And they both attempt to try to figure out how you deal with these problems, with the problems, these and other problems that may come up. Uh, in the case of, and then you look at, um, I think you wanted to talk to how it works today, you know. So yeah. you look at Xi Jinping. Now, Xi Jinping is exactly, I love Jia Jianying. She's so, she's such a good writer and such a, a good thinker about things like this. And I love that quote of hers. And by the way, <laughs> quote of hers, I do my very best to highlight the role that women have played through history, which has often been underplayed in general history. Um, mm. And the, the various women thinkers and writers and scientists and inventors and warriors and, and all the rest. And I, I, I like to highlight them and I like to quote women thinkers as well uh, um, as much as possible. Anyway, that was just a little aside. No, I appreciate <laughs> um, that. I absolutely do. Because, I mean, we've, we've been talking a lot about guys who, you know, crown themselves emperors and take each other's positions and, you know. Yeah take charge when there really are so many brilliant women throughout Chinese history and, Absolutely. you know, clearly the success behind many men as well. Yes, yes, or the regents, for example. Mm. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so then we get to the present day and we get to Xi Jinping. And why has the Communist Party, which when it was founded in 1921 was absolutely it was so anti-Confucian. It was so absolutely anti-Confucian. Why has it embraced Confucius to the point of calling its cultural outreach uh, institutions Confucius Institutes? You know, why does a ruler like Xi Jinping like to quote from the Confucians? You know, Su Shi was a neo-Confucian. I won't get into that. Well, you can read about that in the shortest history of China. But basically, he was a Confucian who tried to further apply the ideas of Confucius to to concrete aspects of ruling. Oh, there, I kind of sort of defined yeah. Confucianism. Yeah, didn't I? Ooh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, so the idea of embracing Confucianism now or embracing Confucius or the idea of Confucius or the language around Confucianism is to invest rule with moral authority, with moral legitimacy. Because Confucius, as I said before, really believed that a ruler had to be a moral example to their people. So if you embrace Confucianism, you give yourself, you give yourself this cloak of, of legitimacy that is, is quite profoundly embedded in the Chinese historical consciousness, this, this notion. But on the other hand, Xi Jinping will use, and he's an absolute legalist in so many ways, it's all about punishment and reward. Speak up, go to jail, right? And that mm. sets an example for other people. Social credit systems, which are piecemeal in China, there's no one overarching social credit system, but they are, for example, donate to charity, be politically forward in supporting the Communist Party, take part in flood relief efforts. You get big social credits for that. Uh, and you might get a better hotel room or access to various other benefits. Let's say you do things that range from dissent, which is very, very bad, to jaywalking or simply not turning up for a restaurant booking. This all goes against your social credit. Uh, and you may be punished depending on how much, on the weight of, of what you've done wrong by, for example, not being able to book at a restaurant or not being able to fly, for example, or, or buy a train ticket. I mean, it can be quite severe or 
you can come to the attention of the authorities and then it goes into a, a, another realm that's outside of social credit. But mm-hmm. that's very legalist. It's like, do the right thing, get rewarded, do the wrong thing, get punished. So there's so much in the way that, that the Communist Party rules today that is based on a very hard calculus of legalism. So these ideas remain important. And it's good to go back and look at what did Confucius actually say. And Confucius said a lot of things, for example, about um, you should st- a gentleman should straighten his mat before he sits down. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was all about the detail. <laughs> I, I did hear that Confucius wasn't a massive fan of women either. He didn't seem to appreciate their intellect or contribution to society. Well, we also should remember he was living about 500 BCE. So there wasn't an awful lot of women of empowered, of the appreciation of empowered women about, right? Even though the Shang dynasty was possibly semi-matriarchal. But what Confucius said about women in particular, yes, ended up being very repressive for them. He said at one point, and this is a line that has been translated in many different ways. One of the things about classical Chinese is that it's extremely succinct and contemporary Chinese uses many more characters to express things. Classical Chinese is extremely economical in its expression and somewhat difficult to pin a precise meaning to at times, right? So it allows for more ambiguity. And what he said about women is that women and servants are hard to manage. Hmm. (laughs) Um, And you can get different translations of that, but that's the essence of it. And also women's place was very much it, you know, women weren't considered the ones who should be trained to be rulers. You know, they, they needed to be they need to be good wives and mothers. But the person who we can really, really blame for a lot of the exact rules and norms that came to be imposed on women's life was a woman. I hate to say this. Um, Ban Zhao, she was a brilliant woman uh, in many ways. She was the sister of a Han Dynasty historian. So Han Dynasty was approximately the same time as the Roman Empire. It was about 200 BCE to about 200 AD, or the Common Era. So she lived then, and her brother was an official historian of the Han court. Her brother died before he could finish his history. And she was so talented and so literate and so accomplished that she finished the history. She contributed such things that had never been done before, like the uh, lineage of the matriarchal clan of the Han. And her history was written so beautifully, it became a model for others. But Ban Zhao, naughty, naughty, she also wrote a primer for how women should behave you know, do as I say, not as I do. And she talked about the importance of, you know, just sticking to your sewing, basically, you know, (laughs) you can imagine. That primer for women really kind of consolidated all the damage of everything. I mean, Confucius was not that concerned uh, in his writing. He was much more concerned about governance and about the color of men's lapels, you know, when they're at home. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he was, he was very, he did not devote all that much thought to women. It was Ban Zhao and then later the Neo-Confucians who thought, hmm, let's take this 
kind of aesthetic, kinky, erotic trend of foot binding that started in the very late, late Tang dynasty. And let's encourage that. Let's make that de rigueur. That really is good because it, it hampers women's mobility. Mm, that's quite convenient. So what you have is a development of people who are Confucians, Banjiao included, who then tighten the grip around women's mobility, women's uh, opportunities, and so on. And you do have people who slip the net. So in the Yuan dynasty, for example, one of the people I profile are people who live on the margins. You know, they, they kind of get away with more. But there was a woman in the Yuan dynasty, an ordinary village woman, in a very probably a very ordinary, abusive <laughs> marriage um, because the mother-in-law was always able to lord it over the, the wife. And this is the reward you get for being an obedient wife is then you get to lord it over your your own daughter-in-law. I mean, it was, it was one of those self-perpetuating systems. Anyway, she was terribly abused by her in-laws. Marriage wasn't great. Was arranged, obviously, mm. uh, and she escaped. She just <laughs> ran away, and she went to Hainan Island, which at the time was, it was there were a bunch of indigenous tribes there, and she went and lived with one of them. And they were really good at dyeing cotton and making cotton textiles and so on. So, twenty-three years later, obviously not having missed her husband very much, she returned to her village, and. She was an inventor, so she invented a better cotton gin and a better this and that. And she taught other village women how to weave cotton and dye it and, and, and all of this. And, and that was the foundation of the textile industry in the Shanghai area. You wow. know, but she was somebody who escaped the Confucian strictures, kind of went feral and came back. And she obviously flourished outside of it. So you have all sorts of very interesting stories. And she is one of the people who I feature. I was looking when I was doing my research. I've got bookshelves and bookshelves of books in Chinese and English about China, about everything. And I was looking and I found a little book that I must have kind of skimmed through before. And it was Great Women of China. It was in Chinese. And I was looking through it. I thought, wow, I've never even heard of Huang Daopo. <laughs> And then I pursued it, and I looked in other sources, and it, was, it wasn't too easy to track down because she just wasn't in any of the normal histories. But the foundation of textile industry in China, that's pretty big. Yeah, absolutely. That's massive. Well, yeah. China has so many points of flourishing that I know that they have great pride in. Oh, and, yeah. you know, going back into some of the dynasties, you know, the Song dynasty was a really wonderful time for great art and culture and silk and trade, really advanced trading and better access to food like meat and sugar. There are these periods that I, I know Chinese people would look back on with great fondness for some of those really wonderful achievements that they look to and that they're known for, like porcelain. Yes, yes. And, and, and it really does build one from the next. So the Han Dynasty was a great era of invention. And that's when you had the south-facing compass invented, the first compass. Paper was invented in the Han Dynasty. Gunpowder was later. But, you know, you have these astonishing inventions and it wasn't confined to all of the ones that you normally think about. I mean there was the first the world's first topographic map created with rice, in fact. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> yeah, and you have all these other things. And then you had a period of, of disunity and you had a couple of minor dynasties. And then you get to the Tang. But even in the periods of disunity, so when there was a huge amount of warfare during a period called the Three Kingdoms, that's when advances were made on the repeating crossbow. So it makes sense. When you have a lot of warfare, you've got advances in armaments and also a kind of a wheelbarrow that could, you could use to take supplies into a battlefield and ferry out the wounded. Uh, you know, things like that would arise during those periods. And then during periods of great peace and flourishing and openness, like the Tang, when you had all kinds of people living in the Tang capital, from Japanese to Central Asians to Persians and so on, then you have a great period of intercultural mingling and creation of new forms of art and music and so on. And as you said, the Song, the Song was a time of great trading and it was a time of great flourishing. And there was, there's not a lot of people who have kept detailed records on daily life. Very, very sadly, we get a lot of what we know from art and, and poetry, which is why Throughout the shortest history of China, I quote a lot of poetry and, and talk quite a bit about art. But you do have in the Song Dynasty this wonderful, wonderful fellow who chronicled daily life to the extent of listing every type of rice. And there were many, many, many types of rice sold in the shops of Hangzhou. And he listed every dish that was sold in the restaurants there. And there were over 600 of them. And this is when... Europe was, oh, I'm probably going to offend somebody right now, and I'm probably not, I don't know what I'm really talking about, but I kind of picture them slapping a whole slab of meat on a big table and carving <laughs> it up with a knife and <laughs> drinking it down with mead. But, you know, the Chinese cuisine by then was so sophisticated, so extraordinary, and life was so, you know, there were so many types of silk, and it was just magnificent. So, yes, there was this great, great cultural flourishing that went on and built from dynasty to dynasty. And then the Ming, that's when Song and Ming dynasties, the Ming was 1368 to 1644. Those periods were when porcelain, uh, the making of porcelain reached extraordinary heights. And, and certainly did obviously end up influencing Europe because they looked to China and wanted to learn how to make these soft paste porcelain and hard paste porcelain and drew on beautiful styles of porcelain that they then adopted and changed into their own artistic styles. So really China has been a superpower, I guess you could say, for many periods in history. And yeah. even obviously today we're seeing that now, but you know, there is this back and forth and resurgence and and then going back a little bit and then coming forward as we've been discussing. Let's jump just quickly to the modern era because I don't want to skip over that and we're running uh, lower on time. So I just <laughs> wanted to make sure we don't ignore that. We started with Xi Jinping, who's known as Xi Dada in uh, China, which is a shortened translation of daddy or like big uncle. And, and everyone over in China and even here would call their parents or their elders auntie and uncle as a, a way yeah. of respecting them. So he has his own name, like uh, we've got ScoMo and Elbow, I guess, but it's a far less uh, sophisticated <laughs> naming system. But we've also got a period before this contemporary time in China. We've got a, a century of what's called the century of humiliation that is constantly talked about or referred to and has really propelled China 
on in its 20th century and 21st century. And and there are so many really dark periods in modern times that uh, Chinese have been through, like the invasion of China by Japan and, and the murdering and pillaging of China. And there's so many really serious moments and, and moments that are certainly not forgotten by the Chinese people. So I wondered if you could share with us when you were thinking about this modern period, what were some of those key moments that, as you said, have resonance today and have a huge amount of relevance Well, the century of humiliation is a formulation that um, the Chinese have come up with, and they began promoting it in the in the early 90s, following the Tiananmen, the crushing of the student-led democracy protests with violence by the People's Liberation Army. People they needed to get the youth back, so they began framing history um, as there was a century of humiliation followed by communist party's liberation in in 1949 now there's a lot of sense so what it was actually a century of of humiliation it was horrific um and that began with the thing that probably everybody's heard of but not that many people know a lot about the opium wars and the opium wars which occurred in the 40s and 50s and 60s and up to um, 1860 or so in China was a period when England and France and other countries, but primarily England and France at this point, were very frustrated that they had a lot of things they wanted to buy from China, but China didn't really have much that it wanted to buy from the West. Um, it didn't value its, the Western products. It was we, They don't need them. So the Western countries like England and France and England being represented by its great trading corporations, of course, they thought, mm, let's get around this because the China, we, we are losing silver, you know, balance of trade issues and all this stuff to China. What we can do is sell opium into China. And the Chinese were like, don't do that. They had opium, but it, was, it wasn't a social problem. And it was only used very sparingly by, it was used by coolies and uh, that's laboring class and soldiers for pain relief. And it was used sometimes by the idle rich for entertainment, recreational drug use. (laughs) But it wasn't a social problem. And the English began importing it from India in great quantities. And the Chinese said, don't do it. Anyway, they fought several wars, basically. I'm simplifying, of course. But Mm. that's what the opium wars were about. It was like a gang war in a neighborhood where, you know, you're not going to stop us from selling smack (laughs) into your neighborhood. I mean, that's the level of moral authority that the West can claim on that level. What they did is they imposed, there were a whole lot of other things that happened after that, a lot of bullying and incursions and carving up of China into concessions that were ruled by Western powers and then later Japan after the Meiji Restoration made it strong. And these were so humiliating and so painful for China. Western powers took over essentially its shipping, its ports. They also had extraterritoriality. They could, if, say, a a British person murdered a Chinese person in a foreign concession in Shanghai, he was tried according to Western law and not Chinese law. Mm. So they could do whatever they wanted. It was truly a center of humiliation. And it just went on and on. And each each time a new what the Chinese call quite fairly an unequal treaty was signed, China lost more dignity, more land, and uh, often more money because there were demands. So there was a, it was quite a dark period. And then the Qing dynasty, um, as I mentioned before, collapsed. It was a Republican revolution. And then everything divided up into warlords. It was a really 
it wasn't a good hundred years, put it that way. Uh, and there was a Japanese invasion and then civil war. So this plays large in people's minds. Now, what the communists have done is they have a big campaign against historical nihilism, which means don't tell history in any other way from what we tell it. So what they've done is they suppress the fact that there was still quite a lot of suffering after 1949. There were millions of people killed for being counter-revolutionaries. There were people sent off to a vast gulag of labor camps for saying the wrong thing or the right thing at the wrong time. And then the Cultural Revolution incredible suffering. There was, of course, a three-year period between 1958 and 1961 when a combination of Mao's policies and his stubbornness and unwillingness to listen to people who were saying this was going badly, uh, the, the withdrawal of Soviet aid after Mao split with the Soviet Union and some natural disasters led to a three-year famine where something like 40 million people died. That's... yeah. Think about it. It could be like, think about twice the population of Australia. Within you know, such that, a short span of time. Within three mm. years, everyone dying and starvation is not a pretty death. Mm. So the, that's not part of the story of a hundred years of humiliation. Once 1949 happens, everything is good. <laughs> <laughs> so it is very interesting um, mm. how history is told, how it has to be told, how it's being forced to be told. And it was before Xi Jinping, There was still some leeway on this. In the 1980s, the 1980s were the time of vigorous intellectual debate and lots of, uh, there was just, even in TV, you could have TV shows that questioned um, the worship of the Great Wall, you know, that questioned, Mm -hmm. you know, why do we hold this up as an icon? It shouldn't be our icon, a national icon. It was a terrible thing. It symbolized cutting ourselves off from the world, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was all this kind of debate and rediscussion of history, looking back into history and saying, have we thoroughly understood this? But then after all of that kind of intellectual uproar resulted in the student-led demonstrations for democracy in 1989, the Communist Party went, nah, <laughs> let's talk about the century of humiliation. Let's educate our youth in appreciating the rules of the Communist Party. So, But still, there were times when people could question that. And in the shortest history of China, in the final chapter, I do talk about Other voices that are saying, no, if we talk about the opium wars, we have to explain why the foreigners came in and burned down the Yuan Mingyuan, the beautiful palace. We can't just say they came in and burned it down. It's not that that excuses what they did, but we should understand that their emissaries were tortured. And this was revenge for that. We have to understand these, the details of history. But that under Xi Jinping has all been suppressed. None of that is possible. It certainly sounds like it was just a gradual decrease after Tiananmen and or even before Tiananmen. And certainly one of the things that's interesting when you were talking about the famine, well, obviously people in the 1980s, for example, would have a memory of what's happened in the last 20 to 30 years. And, you know, their family would have an experience of what's happened and this kind of horrible experiences and and malnourishment in some cases, and especially out in the country, a lot of suffering. Mm -hmm. So is that national history, but do personal histories always line up to the national history? Well, they don't. But the other thing is, are they passed on? Because with the generation, for example, the people whose parents were in the Cultural Revolution, their parents, parents in China, if they've been through something, 
They also understand that to pass that on, that pass that awareness on, is to create anger at the Communist Party among their children, you know, for their children. Mm -hmm. And that can only mean that their children are condemned to a very difficult life and that they won't get opportunities, that they're going to write themselves out by asking awkward questions. So what you find again and again in China is a lack of generational transmission of contemporary trauma. You have people who only discover very, very late what their parents went through um, or don't discover this at all. And it's to protect the kids. It's, kind of, it's a really terrible thing. And also, because we're used to living in an environment where every, what is it, every 30 years, you know, 30 years after uh, something's happened, then the papers can be released. Yes, 30, the cabinet papers. Yeah. The yep. cabinet papers and so on. Um, and we can constantly be reevaluating our history. We also have the various history wars, you know, and we've got mm -hmm. everybody discussing was Bruce Pascoe right? Was he wrong? Was, you know, what is, you know, Henry Reynolds overturned other ideas of history. We can constantly be looking at this stuff. Scott Morrison might not like it. The liberals might not like it. But we can talk about the, the frontier wars. We can talk about the massacres. And we can talk about them on every forum. In China, you will not find a book in a bookshop. You will not see a thing. You will not hear anything on radio. You will not see anything on TV or in film that questions the party line on history. Well, it's and a so good point that you make about the difference between those who are currently in mainland China and then those who leave mainland China and have the benefit of distance to then be able to reflect and to have that greater awareness once they've left and, and have and different access, access yeah, to information. Exactly. And so what happens is you actually can erase memory. Memory needs mm. to be, I read a book on memory recently. Um, I can't remember the author, but it's about how, <laughs> that's how bad my memory is. But, <laughs> but she talks about how Memory, we kind of have this idea that a memory is something that just sits in your brain, you know, and then you can access it. But memory has to be constantly exercised. And every time you think of it, you slightly alter it, right? So we're constantly altering our memory. Now, if you don't think about something, I'm sure every listener has instances where, you know, you're talking to, to old friends and, and somebody says, or your parents say, oh, my God, when you were nine years old or, you know what I mean, or 20 years ago, this happened or something. And you're like, what? I don't remember that at all. Because you have not rehearsed that memory. You have not accessed it. You have not looked at a photo that reminds you of it. And that's what happens on a national scale in China. Yeah. And that's why you can have this incredibly aggressive form of nationalism that we see among young people because they don't have access to that information. And what they have access to is a constant drumbeat, you know, of tellings of the century of humiliation and, and the Japanese invasion. All of that is true, but it's not the full story. And therefore, you can have a very uninflected reaction, uh, the uninflected nationalism, that angry, angry nationalism, which relies on only knowing part of the story. Linda, I think you might be helping at least us understand, you know, the complexities <laughs> of memory and history of, of China, given how many thousands of years this book spans. It is so extensive, but obviously, you know, you have to, to hold some things back. So I'm glad we've been able to delve a bit deeply into these areas 
and give people a taste of what they're going to be reading when they pick up your book, which is called The Shortest History of China. And I'm sure the beauty of Chinese history, as well as the tumult, uh, has come through in this conversation. And, and hopefully people can pick it up and start to understand just how wonderfully rich and nuanced it is. So I'm so grateful to you for spending the time with us today to explain it and also sharing your great knowledge and enthusiasm with us. Oh, thank you, Amy. It's been a wonderful interview, and it's so great, as I say, to be to be back at at Triple R. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, yes, enjoy not being in lockdown, Melbourne. <laughs> oh, I think we will make the most of it. We still have some restrictions, but it feels really wonderful to be able to go outside for more than five reasons. So it's a that is it's a brand great. new world. Very happy. Very happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope you get thank to have you. the same soon. And and thanks so much, Linda. Thank you. Thanks, Amy. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.